Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, October 13th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, national editor. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. 13. The net loss in points by Donald Trump among female likely voters in Wisconsin after the leaked tape story. 6. The percentage lead Democrats have in a generic congressional ballot after last week's events. And 9,192, that's the number of hacked emails from John Podesta's personal Gmail account that WikiLeaks had released by the time we recorded this show. What that means is that we're going to get a big wiki dump every morning until Election Day. Also, after we talked with Marjorie Dannenfelser about her work on behalf of Trump back in September, Planned Parenthood and some of you wrote us to say, hey, not fair. We hear you. And so this week, stick around at the end and you'll hear our interview with the executive director of Planned Parenthood Action Fund about what that group is doing on behalf of Hillary Clinton. Grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. Here we go again. Hello, Scott Bland. Greetings and salutations, Kristen. Hi, Charlie Matessian. Hey, Kristen. Eli Stokels, welcome back from the trail. It is great to be back in Roslyn. <laughs> Ken Vogel, hi. It's great to have Eli back. Hello. <laughs> We've got another great question from one of our listeners. Let's say hi to Sean from Asbury Park, New Jersey. Hi, Sean. What's your question? So I was wondering if you could talk about Politico's process for when a huge story breaks off hours or on the weekends. So are reporters literally writing stories on their iPhones at weddings? how many kids' soccer games were ruined because you had to call sources, that kind of thing. This is, um, this is a really relevant question to all of us. Charlie, go ahead and start, please. <laughs> it's really, it's more painful than relevant. It's so I mean, painful. We've, all, we've all got horror stories about this. Uh, in fact, I was, you know, uh, recently editing at a kid's soccer game on the sideline, looking like that uh, jerk parent not paying attention to the game. You know, we all have tons of stories about how this works. You know, I've done it at a Capitals game, ice uh, hockey game in the stands, having to go into the concourse to, you know, take calls or deal with angry campaigns, things like that. You know, the the wedding uh, question you asked, I mean, uh, recently Ken pretty much filed a whole story from a wedding. And Kristen, I'm, I'm sure you've got you know what, a Charlie, ton of crazy I'm sorry. stories it's too. It's tough, tough for me to feel sympathy for you on the sidelines of your kid's soccer game because I actually remember in, in uh, 2010, in the run-up, it wasn't even the run-up to the midterms. It was sort of like during a slow period in the midterms. It was in May. It was May 10th, to, uh, 2010. I remember because my wedding day, and you had me edit a story on uh, on like in the hours before my wedding. Wait, wait, no, no. Yeah, no, no it's no. actually true. You did that? And actually, I Maybe. Now, <laughs> I have to make a correction. My wedding was actually May 15, 2010. I messed it up by five days. But anyway, you you had me edit this story on Ed Rendell and the tea party on my wedding day in the hours before my, my actual wedding. All right, so let me tell you what actually happened when the Trump video came out on Friday. The, the senior editors of our newsroom were in our daily 4 p.m. meeting, and this video pops. And we watch it, 
and it dawns on us what this is going to be. And the top editors for Politico sat in that room and wrote the first draft of that story together. Now, if you've ever done anything by conference, you probably realize what that situation felt like to those of us who um, should have been out in the newsroom writing that story with the reporters. So we got through that moment, and I realized it's Friday. And on Fridays, I pick my kiddo up. And I needed to make a decision. Do I launch the emergency pickup plan? Or do I realize this is going to be an all-night affair and I need to jet out of there to get her and then restation myself? So that's what I do. I run out of the office, pick up the kid, get us home, set her and her dad up with some pizza for the night and open up the laptop on which I stayed for essentially the entire weekend barring short periods of sleep. The one thing I did try to do on Saturday, which was a total wreck, was I tried to go to a child's birthday party with my kid. It was at the Building Museum in downtown D.C., and I'm the idiot parent who's walking around the Building Museum with an open laptop editing anywhere that I can stop walking while the other parents of these kids, now these are Washington parents, so we're talking about like diplomats and staffers from the Hill and Uber drivers who are really like the most knowledgeable people in D.C., all asking me, what's happening with the video? What's happening? Is he done? Is he going to quit? What's going to happen with Clinton? What about the women voters? This was the entire weekend. My family hates me. Yeah, it really has a, a, a toll on your personal lives, our social lives. I mean, I can remember, maybe it was 2012, I think, I had actually managed to carve out, and this was, I think, in March or fairly early in the in the campaign, uh, carving out some time to, I took a day off and went to Las Vegas. I uh, I haven't done it recently, but I used to play for this baseball team and we would go out and play this national tournament in Las Vegas and, you know, see how you do against teams from all over the country. And so we go out there and it's in, you know, the late innings of the game. And I had to, in the middle of the game, you know, I, I'm checking my, uh, at the time, I think it was a BlackBerry, uh, every, every inning. And so news broke, it exploded, you know, you had to handle all of this, which is, and, and this is something You're Kristen knows really well. Out in the field with you. No, 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 no. When I came, when I came in, but uh, before my bat, I would, I, you know, I, I so I take a look at it and realize like this is a big deal. And I had to tell uh, my teammates that I have to be taken out, and they were like, "Well, what's wrong with you?" And I was like, "Well, nothing. News is broken." And I had to stop. And so then I went down, you know, wired on ibuprofen and chewing tobacco at the end of the bench, you know, pecking <laughs> out, you know, orders to. There's a whole process here, as you know, Kristen. It's it's web producers. Instructions need to be made. Decisions have have to be made in terms of is this a story? Is it not? Which reporters are working on it? Uh, what is the angle we're going to take? So there's a whole long list of, of responsibilities that goes along with this, and it takes up a lot of time and. And so I was sitting there at the end of the bench, taking myself out of the game, sitting there, knocking this all out uh, on, a, on a mobile. So, yeah, Sean, it affects our lives very much, and we get great use out of our smartphones. Thank you so much for your question, and thanks for listening to the show. Hey, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Let's get to our first data point. It is the number 13. That is the net loss in points by Donald Trump among female likely voters in Wisconsin after the leaked tape story from Friday. Now, Charlie, what do you take away from this number? Well, I thought the numbers uh, were pretty amazing when they came out. And the number we're talking about here is a Marquette uh, Law School poll that was released yesterday. And the reason it's a big deal, I think, in the political world is this is a highly respected poll. And we have been dying for any sort of data to come out since since Friday to, to gauge in some sense, like what did this bombshell do to his numbers? Now we have a couple of polls out there and some some decent data. Uh, it's not conclusive. 
Uh, there's not enough yet, but we do have an idea. And what we found in uh, the the Marquette poll is that his numbers really fell off the table among female likely voters because they were in the field on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And so they were able to break it out day by day to see his numbers. So uh, Trump was doing much better. I think he may have even been up by one in their Thursday survey. And then by Saturday and Sunday, he completely cratered. And to see that kind of movement 13 points in a couple days is just stunning. It is staggering. And it's not just women voters that that poll found. I mean, this poll was really spectacularly interesting, right? I mean, they show support among evangelicals going from 64% on Thursday to 47% over the weekend. And Clinton picked up seven of those points. I think what's remarkable is you, I mean, we've covered an entire campaign and said, why don't things stick to Donald Trump? Why does he get away with things? And for whatever reason, this one video that happened on Friday is so significant because it was the first time it drew out an apology from him, right? He had to apologize because there was video and audio of him actually saying these things. It was indisputable that this was him, that it was grotesque and misogynistic and just disgusting. And he had to apologize. But then it led to the moment in the debate where Anderson Cooper asked him three times, but did you do these things? And he said, I have great respect for women. He ignored the question until the third time after being pressed, he said, no, I've never done these things. And that is what led to what we saw this week when on Wednesday night you suddenly have this you know flood the dam just broke five new allegations in just a matter of hours and what it was everybody said oh the Clintons are amazing with Oppo give them so much credit you know maybe one or two of these is Oppo we don't know that but what it seems like is that a lot of women out there, I mean, he, he sort of admitted to the crime before there was evidence of it, right? He admitted to it in this tape that was released on Friday, and then he denied it on the debate stage. And I think that clearly prompted a lot of women out there, right? We don't know how many women have similar stories, but this prompted a lot of them, it seems like, I mean, to come it, forward. If he didn't say that on the debate stage, if he didn't deny it, would these women have felt like personally challenged? And it's no coincidence. I mean, he said like we had four or five. There were 11, by my count, on Wednesday alone. There were four who came forward in a BuzzFeed story, two in the New York Times, two in The Guardian, one in the Palm Beach Post, one who's a people reporter who told her own story, and then one on Facebook. 11. So how many more are we going to see? This is going to continue to trickle out. Just like the WikiLeaks story, which I know we're going to talk about later, is going to continue to trickle out for Hillary Clinton. It's overshadowing the WikiLeaks story. I mean, that's the other thing, though. There has been some news, again, maybe not wholly devastating, but a news cycle that, you know, in an ordinary election might not be so great for Hillary Clinton, and nobody's paying any attention to it. Charlie, jump in. One thing that I've been amazed by is, think, think put this in some context of, of, of recent presidential elections. This guy has had now the equivalent of at least two atomic bombs dropped on him in the final weeks of the campaign with the uh, first in New York Times tax story and then the Access Hollywood leak tape. Now, you know, you might see that this the, the recent revelations from yesterday and today about new women saying they've been assaulted by him, that could be a third one. And what I find amazing is, yes, he's falling in the polls, but his core, the base of Donald Trump's support does not seem to be changing at all. Uh, I mean, it's early again, we don't have great polling data on that, but by every indication, the hardcore Trump support is not eroding at all. Well, part of that is because people hate Hillary Clinton. 
and right. because he's preconditioned his supporters not to believe anything that the media reports. What does he do at all of his rallies? He complains about the unfair polls. He turns people around and says, look at the unfair media. This week they've been chanting, CNN sucks, right? It's getting, we wrote a story early in the week about Trump unbound, Trump unhinged. He's talking about Trump unshackled. There's some part of Trump that has to realize that this is not going to end well. And you're seeing a really angry and vitriolic and vengeful, spiteful Trump. And I think we know where this leads, right? We know this leads to more Bill Clinton yeah, allegations. Yeah, I mean, it's good. And, it's good for his base. His base likes the Bill Clinton allegations. They like the media. Uh, you know, the, oh, they the, want him back. They want him, him to continue to, to, to dole that out. And, you know, it's not unusual. Like, we remember with McCain, for instance, like, one of the few things that McCain really, like, got the base fired up about was the New York Times coming after him. The base didn't like John McCain, you know, but they liked the fact that he that he was able to say that he was being victimized and attacked and unfairly targeted by the liberal MSM. Didn't hurt to have Sarah Palin on the ticket doing that. So I don't think that what uh, Donald Trump has, uh, you know, done with that, with, with uh, sort of inoculating himself, attempting to inoculate himself, uh, with his base from uh, bombshells in the media is like particularly unusual. You know what? What will be key is whether he can get those folks out to vote. And we're doing a lot of reporting, and we're seeing a lot of reporting from other media outlets that suggest that his ground operation, his ground operation, the campaign's ground operation is non-existent. But the RNC's ground operation that they've spent all this time building in lieu of doing advertising, which is something that we just reported that they haven't done a dime of independent expenditure advertising for Donald Trump. Instead, they say we've been spending all this money on get out the vote and building these models and registering voters. Uh, we hear, though, from people in the field that it's maybe not all that it's cracked up to be, and that's where it becomes such a key. It's not only getting your base out to vote, which he obviously needs to do, but he's losing these like these these swing voters, and uh, it's just not not looking good. And the Republican reaction to this tape is a secondary story, but one with really lasting implications. I mean, we're, we're spending a lot of time, and we're going to spend a lot of time over the next weeks and months talking about the impact of Paul Ryan, for example, pulling back of two dozen Republicans withdrawing their endorsement. As we look to the last, um, as we look to the last days of this campaign, what do you see, Eli, in terms of uh, the Republican establishment getting even farther away, the RNC moving its resources and its efforts away? Is that something that's going to happen? The calculation is very difficult for Republicans, and I think it's just sort of representative of a party right now that has completely split apart. And it is very difficult when you're trying to get elected as a Republican right now to understand based on your specific district or state, um, you know, where the balance of power is, right? If you're in Wisconsin, okay, that might be one place because Paul Ryan's from there and because it's a pretty, uh, you know, it's not exactly a great Trump state among Republicans, uh, you know, it might be easier to make that calculation and run away from him. Um, but if you're in a lot of other places, you know, redder states, even if you, I mean, you know, Joe Heck is out on a limb in Nevada because Trump inexplicably is doing pretty well there. And he said, I'm unendorsing. He's sticking with that. 
And that may hurt him. That may help him. It's, it's really unclear. And this is sort of one of these political calculations or equations that is very difficult to solve right Stay now. Stay in the West with me for a second. Um, how is this affecting how Hillary Clinton is campaigning? And we just saw news. We reported news yesterday. Alex Eisenstadt did that Priorities is now canceling ads in Colorado. So so what's the what's the impact on actually the tactics of the Hillary Clinton campaign and her allies? Well, I mean, the whole, you know, the bigger electorate, I mean, it was already tilted a little bit toward Hillary Clinton. Clinton, right. And now it's just tilted at an even steeper angle. And so what's that what that's done is not just put states like perhaps Arizona and Georgia in play, but it's changing the way Hillary Clinton is viewing uh, the states and the places she goes and the schedule over the last couple of weeks. Uh, before Trump's meltdown, the Colorado staffers uh, on Clinton's campaign were hoping to get her one more time. And they were going to put her in the Denver suburbs because that's where all the votes are. That's where the suburban women are. That's what swings Colorado elections. But after the videotape, um, they said, okay, we got women on lockdown. We don't need our, mar- our numbers in those districts. The swing counties traditionally are great. And they've always viewed Colorado as kind of in the bag, but they could kind of play with even more house money here. And yesterday, uh, Wednesday, they put her in Pueblo, Colorado, which is where Trump was, you know, nine days earlier. And this is a working class, blue collar, old steel mill town, some Hispanics, but really ripe for Donald Trump, right? This is sort of Reagan Democrat, lunch pail, union workers, people who really respond to his trade message and everything else. And they sent Hillary Clinton there. Why? To sort of like prevent Trump from stealing votes, yes, but also because of the down ballot impact on the House races. That's a House district, Colorado's third district, that is vast and rural and a darker shade of red than District 3 in the Colorado suburbs. The the political dork in me is sort of fascinated by what's happening in the West right now. Not just Colorado, but take a look at Arizona, I think, for the first time uh, could or not for the first time, but obviously uh, could go Democratic, uh, which is which is sort of fascinating. We've been hearing that for a long time. Oh, Arizona is going blue because of demographic trends and it never really happens, you know. Uh, but this time we could see it because of Hispanic voter registration there. Look at what's happening in Utah as well. New poll out of there showing that race is essentially even there. Uh, what's been uh, really, really interesting to watch is the reaction in Utah to the leaked tapes because Donald Trump has always had a problem with Mormons who have never warmed to him. But when those tapes came out, the real reaction, you could see a couple of different strands of uh, the Republican Party get offended by it, but one of it uh, was centered in what I consider to be the spiritual resistance to Donald Trump, and that is Utah, because all the politicians who came out strongest and hardest and clearest against Trump were Mormon. We saw it in the primary. He struggled in Utah and, then, and in the uh, Mormon areas of, of Idaho and elsewhere. And so uh, if Utah were to go Democratic, it would be stunning. I don't think it will be, but all of a sudden you've got an electoral map that is scrambled in a way that we haven't seen for, for years. We're we're used to a hardwired electoral map where two-thirds of the states vote the same way every four years, and all of a sudden we have the prospect of a place like Arizona going Democratic, a place like Utah actually competitive, and then think about Maine in the east. The second district of Maine right now looks like, and, and I should say that Maine has that cockamamie system like Nebraska where they hand out a couple of electoral votes by the statewide vote and then one in each of the congressional districts, but it looks very a virtual certainty right now when you look at the numbers that Trump will take that northern second district uh, and that would be another deviation from the norm when it comes to the electoral map. Just just to bring home the point on Utah, which I think is is a, a very uh, uh, sound one, 
uh, Evan McMullen, who is uh, a BYU graduate who was the independent candidate who's on the ballot in a bunch of states, has, is pulling at 22% in a recent Utah poll with Clinton and Trump tied at 26. 22%. And that's just a, pro, a, a Trump protest vote. Evan, this is your moment. Scott Bland, you have to jump in here now that we're talking about the down ballot. Your data point is six. That's the percentage point lead that Democrats have in the generic congressional ballot after last week's events. Please tell our listeners what a generic congressional ballot is. Yeah, that's just where, uh, you know, people take a national poll, right? You're not asking about individual House races. So you ask, uh, would you vote if the election was today, would you vote for a Democrat for Congress or would you vote for a Republican for Congress? And right now, you know, we've seen in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, some other surveys out this week, the average lead right now is is working out to about six points for Democrats, which is just about the biggest advantage they've had in that kind of question since the government shutdown in 2013. Now, as we remember, that advantage was erased almost immediately by the uh, trouble with the Obamacare website launch afterwards. But this is happening four weeks before an election. Um, and what pollsters kind of on both sides who are looking at this are saying is this is this is not quite where Democrats would want to be to really be challenging for the House. It's kind of on the low end of where it would be possible. But the question is, you know, is this going to balloon in the next four weeks? Is this going to keep expanding uh, as as more Trump fallout hits the, the rest of his party? What Republican races are now in play that were not last week? Yeah, I think uh, you know just just last week we saw uh, an example of a couple places where Democrats were putting in money where they hadn't before. A couple districts in California, especially one Daryl Issa's, where you know he's the, this is Orange County, San Diego. It's a district that's never really been in play before, but it's diverse and it has a lot of college-educated whites, and that's kind of the death knell for Donald Trump right now. Where we're seeing it add to could be a place like the Kansas City suburbs, where the Democrats just released a poll showing their candidate down four just four points, despite being very badly outspent. And this is a district that Mitt Romney won with 54% of the vote in 2012, where Hillary Clinton is now winning with 52% of the vote, according to this poll. And I think that's one we should watch. And districts like that, a lot of highly educated people, a lot of uh, uh, diverse population, where Democrats really could be trying to push the issue in the next few weeks. Yeah, but isn't the, the generic number the most overrated data point in politics? I feel like every two years, every cycle, we get the Democrats are leading on the generic and Republicans always win. Like we you, we just mentioned 2013 and the lead they had in the generic. And what happened? Nothing. You know, it. it I think the generic is an overrated number when it comes to the congressional polls. And for whatever reason, it just doesn't apply anymore. I, I, I disagree. I think it's I think it's overrated when you're talking about 2013, like we were after that government shutdown. But this is four weeks before an election. And I think this kind of feeds into what even before the Trump tape happened, I've noticed a lot of the data analytics guys on the Republican side have been a lot more nervous about the House than the more traditional consultants even before this. And I think, you know, yesterday there was an interesting release. Uh, Adrian Gray, a Republican strategist who used to work for the RNC and, and the, the Bush administration, has been publishing these really interesting uh, data models and analysis on on uh, the election writ large. And he he published an uh, uh, analysis yesterday. According to his model, uh, he's projecting Hillary Clinton's going to carry 232 of the 435 House seats. That's a majority by about mm, 15. And 47 of those are currently held by Republicans. So the question then becomes just how much ticket splitting can these Republican incumbents do over the next four weeks? Right. If she wins by five, then maybe they hold those seats. But if she's winning by double digits, right, and I would imagine that in a lot of these places, the Republican incumbents 
are maybe being caught a little flat-footed because they probably, I mean, they may have started getting nervous about Donald Trump a little while ago, but through the summer and even into, you know, toward the end of September, there was a feeling like, okay, we're going to be okay. He's an independent brand. He's not losing by that much. This is perfect. There was the sense right up till a week or two ago that this was going to be okay. And I can imagine now it's, you know, there's not a lot of time to sort of pump resources into these races. Well, turn it on its head and let's talk about the Democrats for a second. I mean, the Democrats have been livid with the Hillary Clinton campaign for focusing on the Republicans who are not Trump. She has had a message for more than four weeks that Donald Trump is not normal. He is not a normal Republican. All of the rest of the party, geez, they reject him too. And what that does is make them less uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it creates a situation where the Democrats you running, them. you can separate them, right? And the Democrats running against these Republicans no longer have an ability to tie their opponent to Trump in the way that they would like to because Hillary Clinton at the top of the ticket is saying he's so different. And now, with just four weeks out, Hillary Clinton's campaign is feeling confident enough to start shifting to the down ballot. But they're starting to feel like it might be too late. Well, I think they did that to try and say, hey, Republicans, this is a safe space for you, okay? We know you're not all like Donald Trump. Um, I but think, yeah, I think I it think was targeted toward the, voters, right? right? It, it was, was it was toward voters and toward big Republican endorsements. I mean, remember, Clinton's campaign was really working, back-channeling with, you know, uh, important and symbolically important Republicans to be able to bring in and tout their endorsements. They were working a lot. Of, they were working the Bushes. They were working people who worked for the Bushes and, and on down the line. And they got a lot of people who, you know, worked in 41 and 43's administration on board early, especially national security types. But I think at this point, you know, yes, they can focus down ballot. Hillary was in uh, Miami this week. She's talking about Rubio, right? She's talking about that Senate race in explicit terms. Um, but I think also, like, it's not just Hillary changing strategy. Trump and the spectacular conflagration that is now the Trump campaign. I mean, all these Republicans are, are getting singed by it. And it's not so, I mean, yes, she's she's trying to capitalize on the strategy, right? But she didn't sort of like plant the seeds and watch this happen. I mean, this is happening because of Trump and she's just trying to take advantage. Yeah, I think the really interesting thing also with this is that Clinton is able to take advantage because she's the person running against Trump, right? She can take advantage of it naturally. She doesn't have to, you know, in the debate on Sunday, for example, she pointedly like did not go there, right, in terms of specifically talking about what was on the tape. And, and she invoked Michelle Obama's uh, uh, quote from the Republican convention, when uh, they go low, we go high. The emerging strategy that uh, House Democrats especially are using is, I, I think, would better be described as when they go low, we meet them in the back alley and beat them with a sock full of pennies. <laughs> they, a sock full of a pennies. A sock full of pennies. That, there are ads now running in a bunch of House districts, and there are going to be more um, that we're going to have to watch for, where House Democrats are putting the Trump tape on the air. They're having to bleep it because it's disgusting and vulgar, but they're putting the Trump tape on the air and then with pictures of Daryl Issa, of the Republican and northern wisconsin mike gallagher and saying they supported trump like they bear the responsibility for this vote against them and here's the problem the the, the number i'm watching is the the, the final lead, the, the final margin in the race matters a great deal to the house majority meaning republicans were fine with trump and they could live with trump even if if they didn't like him very much as long as he kept the race to low single digits and kept it uh, within reason, he could lose the way Romney did or McCain did. Uh, but once 
it begins to look like a blowout or the lead gets to double digits, that's when the Republican House majority gets threatened. Once you go into 11 and 12 and 13 points, uh, that's when you can get to 30 because that's what Democrats need to do. They need to net 30 seats. They can't do it in a close race. It's not going to happen. And what I think is worrying a lot of Republicans is all of a sudden in the post-leak environment, the post-tape leak environment, you're beginning to see uh, polls that are scary double digits. Colorado, suddenly, plus 11. That's plus 11, Clinton. These are the most recent ones. It is Michigan, the poll that came out yesterday. Clinton, plus 14. Um, You know, when you look at the Pennsylvania poll that just came out with uh, Clinton winning by uh, 28 in the in the Philadelphia suburbs, once once you have margins like that, that's when the the Republican majority, House majority becomes uh, under threat. And let's not forget Pennsylvania, Michigan. Those were two of the four states the Trump campaign, you know, early on when they were looking at the map said, okay, those are the states. Those are opportunities. Not so much. Right. They're down double digits. So, Charlie, you're not a believer in the split ticket hypothesis. I'm not a believer in the generic as an indicator. I do I do think that in some cases you will see uh, a lot of ticket splitting. Uh, I think you're seeing it in, in Ohio. You see it with the really talented candidates. I mean, there are some candidates that have just done a very good job throughout their career of distinguishing themselves and establishing their own brand and so they can get some distance from the party. Portman in Ohio is a perfect example. He has just been crushed by Democrats the whole cycle trying to tie him to uh, Donald Trump. And he has uh, weathered that storm, I think, because he was prepared for it and uh, built his own brand. And you're seeing uh, in some Senate races, candidates have been able to do that and others they haven't been able to. This gets back to what Eli was saying before also. It's it's not the candidates who have really been preparing for this, like a Senator Rob Portman in Ohio, right? It's these House members who are getting dragged into this, uh, especially, again, you know, House members are not as uh, able to define their own brand as well, right? And those who are getting just dragged into this right at the end without having prepared as though they were going to have a tough race maybe for the last 23 months could end up in real danger. And, the you know, the tricky thing with this is the, the possibility of the House uh, majority being in jeopardy is now a huge political story. But the House is such a lagging indicator. You know, we're still waiting. The committees and, and the candidates themselves are still waiting for polling information back on these districts. And they're still waiting to, to see how the, the candidates deal with this. The, you know, we're, it's going to take some time to puzzle out. And we may not know going into election night just, just what the outcome is going to be. And what I think we'll probably end up seeing is more of these reports. Republican blank check ads where the response to the when you get bombed with a Congressman X is best buddies with Donald Trump. You respond with the ad that says Hillary Clinton needs a check and a balance and Congressman X is the person to do it. And I think we've seen that in some House districts and we'll begin to see that a lot more as they focus on keeping the the voters eye on the idea that there will be a Democrat in the White House and you need to have a check on that Democrat. It's that ad up against the ad of Scott Tipton supports this person who said, and then clip of the video. It's interesting. Trump. I almost put the video on our show, and then I decided it was too gross. The uh, the NRCC is actually running an ad exactly like what Charlie is talking about this morning. They just released it in a district in upstate New York. It's casting the Democrat and actually also a wealthy independent who's running there, too, uh, as, quote, rubber stamps for Clinton in Congress. Let's get to the next data point. It is 9,192. That's the number of hacked emails from John Podesta's personal Gmail account that WikiLeaks has released through midday Thursday, essentially right now. I mean, this organization's got more than 50,000 of Podesta's emails. And the way it's looking is that we're going to have a gigantic email drop every morning until Election Day. But Ken, 
none of this stuff seems to be breaking through and it's not that it's not interesting. What's your read on this? Yeah, there definitely is some stuff that is of great interest to veteran Clinton watchers. I've been pouring through these things. You know, to the caller's question, we have a Slack channel that's set up where we're sharing nuggets from these things. We're dedicating a lot of um, resources to uh, combing through these emails for stories. And there have been some stories that I do think are, you know, cast negative uh, light on Hillary Clinton and the Clintons and their operation. I mean, you had the one speech uh, that she was actually asked about, an excerpt from a speech that was included in the WikiLeaks uh, uh, documents during the debate. Uh, She said in in a public speech, she said, or rather a private speech, she said, you need both a public and a private position on policy. And she was talking about this uh, Lincoln movie, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln movie. But when she was asked about that in the debate, did not come across. Crosswell, she started talking about Lincoln, and and people are what, and, and Donald Trump said, "You're not Lincoln," and that was, uh, I think, one of his few sort of uh, really good moments in the debate. She also talked about her stated dream in quotes of a quote hemispheric common market with open trade and open borders end quote, and that gets right into Donald Trump's sweet spot of uh, you know accusing her of being a globalist who's looking out more for Wall Street and big corporations than she is for the. Uh, interest of sort of regular working folks who are being pinched by uh, some of these international um, uh, sort of uh, economic pressures. And but, you know, there's also a lot of stuff that I think falls into the realm of like, we just don't know enough about it. And you see a lot of this conversation on our Slack channel where like there is a little nugget that seems to be really interesting and potentially damaging. And as we like talk it through and discuss it, there's not really enough context there to know uh, sort of how to present it. That's not going to stop Donald Trump, of course, from seizing on some of these things. And he has seized on some of them uh, to suggest that they are more glaring and and problematic than they are. So this is going to be a debate that we're going to continue having uh, within the media sort of all the way through Election Day, because as you suggested, at this rate, if they were to continue at this rate, they would be able to release a dump every single day through every single weekday through the election and still have 7,724 emails left over. What I think we've learned so far, though, is uh, this stuff might have been damaging in a different year against a different backdrop. Uh, There is some really interesting uh, material in there that could have hurt her. I mean, we learned that everyone's suspicions about where she really stands on trade have been confirmed. Uh, we we see the coziness with Wall Street. We see the uh, the calculation. We know that she was thinking about running longer, you know, well in advance of what we'd been led to believe. So all of these things have been confirmed. But how do, it's impossible to break through against what we're seeing on the other side: the meltdown of a party, the nominee torching the House Speaker, the uh, the nine hundred million dollars in net operating losses, the Access Hollywood tapes. Not the 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 WikiLeaks stuff just doesn't even break through against that kind of backdrop. Well, you know who must be pulling his hair out is Bernie Sanders. Because if anyone could have benefited from this information landing a few months ago, it is him. I mean, just look at some of this stuff. Like One of the things that we found this week was an 80-page attachment on one of these emails that was done up by Clinton's Speakers Bureau, highlighting things that she has said in these speeches that could be problematic. 
one of them to Goldman Sachs. We've got a participant from Goldman Sachs in this closed door speech saying, I've had the honor to raise money with you when you were running for president in Texas. Mrs. Clinton responds, you are the smartest people. And she's talking, you know, she's joking, obviously. You're the smartest people, she's telling the Goldman Sachs folks. But when you pile that on top of all of the other things that she said to financial industry executives, here's one, another Goldman summit. Many of you in this room are masters of the trend lines. You see over the horizons. You think about products that nobody has invented. You go about the business of trying to do that. I mean, the amount of praise she's heaping on Wall Street is exactly the kind of stuff that feeds Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's narrative about her. Ditto the uh, open borders and the the trade stuff. I mean, it fits right in there. And and you know we see the the co- it's not just the coziness with Wall Street. Some of those folks are as that uh, you know as that excerpt of the speech speech suggests donors, but it's other donors as well and donors to the Clinton Foundation, which again fits exactly with with, with Donald Trump and even to some extent with uh, some of the stuff that Bernie Sanders talked about when he was running against her. Um, you know we we see Chelsea Clinton flagging potential conflicts of interest uh, um, at the foundation. This is what Donald Trump, this is what Republicans have been saying for for months and months and months. And, you know, we wrote a story about this. And when when the story published, Sean Spicer, our friend over at the RNC, uh, tweeted out out, uh, a link to it and said, even Chelsea knew that there were conflicts at the foundation. Another um, email that was uh, released here that I thought was interesting was uh, talking about how they they wanted to get Bill some of the foundation people wanted to get Bill Clinton on the phone to talk to Sheikh Mohammed to thank him for offering his plane to the conference in Ethiopia and express regrets that President Clinton's schedule does not permit him to uh, to attend the conference. Well, one of the people on that chain responded, "Unless Sheikh Mo has sent us a six million dollar check." Uh, then I think then this sounds crazy to do. I mean, that's exactly what people do. That's people exactly sort of what people fear. think about it. Right. And so, you know, it does get to this question of like whether we in the press, as liberals say, are being manipulated by WikiLeaks. They're selectively dribbling out these hacked emails and they're, you know, they're dribbling them out in a way that like sort of uh, furthers a narrative. They're not going to release emails. We don't see emails that are sort of uh, have the exculpatory information in them. They're not going to release emails that sort of show the Clintons to have been making the right call on some of these tricky things. And so I think it's a legitimate question that we need to be asking ourselves how we cover these, how we authenticate these emails, how we contextualize hacked information, and whether we are being manipulated. Wait, do you think that they are manipulating, that they're holding stuff back? I, I don't think that only because of the difficulty that even we're finding in the media of plowing through them. We've got a team of people plowing through those. It's hard to find. It's needle in a haystack. It's it's trying different search terms. I mean, we're fortunate to find a lot of this stuff. It's hard for me to imagine that the WikiLeaks staff has been able with those tens and tens of thousands of documents to really find these uh, bombshells and then hold them back. Like, I don't know that they have the resources. I mean, they, they are making editorial decisions here and you see it in the emails that they 
choose to highlight on their own Twitter feed and on their right. own website. They they are highlighting. They are going through these things before they release them, looking for things that they think are interesting. And frankly, some of the things that they seize on do reflect, to me, a rather sophisticated understanding of American politics and American media and the news cycle. Uh, and it does beg the question. I mean, we don't know the answer. We don't know if they're holding back. And, it, and we don't know uh, if they are... Uh, you know, if they are, you know, pushing things out at certain times to achieve certain effects, but it certainly seems that way from from an outside perspective uh, that everything, the timing, the what they choose to highlight, is done with a goal in mind. So we just have to be conscious of that. Even if we don't know the answer, we have to be conscious of the possibility that uh, we are being manipulated. Yeah. I want to circle back to what Charlie said before, though, about kind of where this story stands within within the election coverage right now and how Donald Donald Trump's kind of force of uh, you know, the force of nature aspect behind the news that he's generating with his taxes and the, the, the tape and the allegations against him now are kind of subsuming this. But uh, I think, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's too early to talk about the these emails as maybe not being so much a problem for Hillary Clinton now, but once her opponent is not Donald Trump, once her opponent is Republicans in Congress and just the public opinion in general, if she is to win. And progressives in the House. Exactly. And, you know, for example, she's going to be trying to get cabinet and subcabinet members confirmed again if she wins over the next few months after. And the role that these emails will play in, you know, if anyone somewhat connected to Wall Street or to the foundation or any number of other things that have popped up in these emails come up, I think that's really where we're going to see these effects trickle in, maybe not so much into the presidential election, but into how she is able to to start her administration, which, again, as current trends show, she would be starting, if she wins, as the least popular new president you know, since the advent of Poland. I would encourage uh, our listeners and, you know, consumers of, of media to check the, the WikiLeaks documents out themselves. It's very easy. Uh, it's very Don't accessible. Don't attachments. Yeah, I, I wouldn't encourage that. But go to the site, take Uh-oh. a look, and you get a pretty I've good idea. That. You get a pretty good idea from reading that stuff. Uh, and you'll get a sense of, and you'll be able to do some pretty good, uh, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking of how the media is treating oh, it. Oh, it's not just Monday morning quarterbacking. I am getting, like, some of my best tips on these emails from readers who were just saying, I got one guy who's like feeding me all this amazing stuff. He's going through it like faster than we are. I'm sending stuff that he has sent to me. He's just a random guy. It's not even his job. He's not in politics. In fact, he's made a joke to me in his emails that like, this is more fun than my actual job. But I send the stuff that he has flagged into our Slack channel and people are like, wow, that's great stuff. And you should feel free to call Ken at all hours, uh, <laughs> 2 a.m., 3 a.m. especially. We do. Yeah. I think that Scott makes a really interesting point, especially if if the Clinton people are correct that upwards of 25, 30, 35 percent of Americans are going to vote early. That means that none of these emails are going to be affecting their decisions because so many of them have already voted. But back to what you said, Ken, I find it fascinating this offensive that the Clinton campaign has been putting on over the last 48 hours. Last night, was it Brian Fallon tweeting about how this is a modern day Watergate and attempting to get reporters not to cover it and to instead cover it as a criminal activity by who knows who, right? Oh, they say Russia. Well, they say Russia and they say Roger Stone. Neither of those things do we have proof of yet. It's not it, It's not that we're saying that it's not true. We're saying we need to actually do reporting around that. And we are doing reporting around that. But Charlie, I'm interested in your perspective on this as another editor. The idea that this is not newsworthy because these are stolen documents. 
I think it's incredibly newsworthy. Uh, and I think that it's a mistake to, to use the Watergate analogy. I, I just don't really see the nexus there to me. It's apples and oranges. Uh, but I do think uh, a more effective pushback from the Clinton camp would be to focus on the Russian angle. There's lots more circumstantial evidence there. It's a much stronger case to make than the idea that it's Watergate. Because if, once you start throwing Watergate around, then I think people begin to tune out because then they then it sounds like the typical partisan over-exaggeration. But once you Always has people, a gate on the end. Also. Yeah, there's always a gate or it's always the most dangerous or the most ist whatever. I mean, I think once you focus them on the Russian connection where there is lots and lots of evidence, then that becomes a very effective uh, talking point. The other thing, the other place where I think they're sort of making a mistake is in their very aggressive, very Clinton-esque pushback. They're refusing to authenticate these documents. When we asked them about specific things, and, you know, again, this does not in any way lessen the burden on us as journalists to make sure that we are authenticating them. And when I've written about these things, I've written about them, uh, the emails that touch on areas and phenomena that I have, like, researched extensively and written about previously. And in every case, these emails have backed up what I what I had previously reported. And so that for that, for me, it's like super interesting. And I, you know, I, I've sort of authenticated them on my own. But I think the Clintons make a mistake here. And the reason why is that there is the potential for one of these documents for them to like release something in the future that is like a huge bombshell that could be fabricated or altered. And if the Clintons have this track record of refusing to comment, refusing to comment, then when they actually come out and say, this is wrong, I don't think they have like a lot of credibility on it. You know, I was on uh, Hardball yesterday with Kurt Eichenwald, the Newsweek reporter who has written extensively on Russia and also on Trump. And he says that this is actually like there, there is sort of a track record of in Russian propaganda of doing something like this, where you're sort of building credibility by releasing authentic things. And then you throw in something at the last minute that is altered or particularly damning. And you already have people who assume that everything is right and that therefore they assume that this they don't have time to validate this last one and they run with it anyway. Um, so I think the Clintons it's, could it's be called, like, yeah, it's called black propaganda. It's like right. this is what the, like the English did this in World War II. They set up German language radio stations that were broadcasting mostly news over into the continent to to Axis forces. But every so often they would slip in a little something else in there. And the idea is that like you know you you build this up as a legit thing and then you pop something uh, in. Although although to Kristen's point, like you know if if the goal is to like sneak something in at the last minute, that's going to be super damning. Well, early voting is already happening and a lot of people have already done it and a lot of people have made their conclusions and there's going to be a lot of like hue and cry unless it's something so damning that it's going to like swing a huge block of people on election day. And so far, we haven't seen that in the WikiLeaks documents. It's not to say that something like that might not be coming, but you would think if they are making these editorial decisions, which I contend that they are in an effort to drive a narrative, they would be conscious of the early voting timeline and know that they need to get the most explosive stuff out now. Before we end, we wanted to share some of our interview with Deirdre Schiefling, the executive director of Planned Parenthood Action Fund, about what that group is doing on behalf of Hillary Clinton and down-ballot Democrats. Welcome, Deirdre. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. I'm I'm happy to be with you. Can you um, start big? Tell us, what is the organization doing on behalf of Hillary Clinton? So this year, we are running an unprecedented campaign for us um, in terms of its size and scope. 
uh, we are spending $30 million to reach 3 million voters across six swing states. Um, and these are voters who are um, either undecided on the election um, and who care deeply about women's access to reproductive health care um, or who are infrequent Democratic voters who also care deeply about women's access to reproductive health care. And we're talking to them about what's at stake this election um, and turning them out to vote. So put some meat on those bones for us, if you will. You're, you're talking about spending. Did I, did I hear you say 30 million? That's a lot of money. Yes. <laughs> OK, so what is 30 what is 30 million getting you? So the heart and soul of our program is our door-to-door canvas. And the reason for that is because we know that that's the most effective way to reach voters, is to have a conversation with them at their door by a neighbor or somebody from their community talking to them about what's at stake in this election um, and educating them on the candidates' positions. Because, you know, as surprising as it might be for you or I who follow politics really closely, Um, most voters actually don't know Donald Trump's terrible positions on women's reproductive health care access, nor do they know Hillary Clinton's incredibly strong record on these same issues. And so it's really important to have a face-to-face conversation to educate them about that and make sure that they understand what's at stake this year um, for uh, access to reproductive health care. So that's really the centerpiece of our program. We plan to knock 2 million doors. Um, We've already knocked um, 1.2 million. So very exciting. We've surpassed that million door mark. Um, We also are sending some mail to phone to to people who we can't reach by uh, door to door. And we're doing some phone calls um, and we're doing a handful of targeted digital ads um, and TV ads as well. Deirdre, what are the six swing states that you're that you've selected? So we are running this program in Ohio, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and Wisconsin. And we selected those states because they're competitive uh, presidential states, incredibly important. And they also have competitive Senate races happening, as well as other important down-ballot races. So we wanted to really maximize our impact um, by being able to communicate to voters about important elections happening up and down the ballot. So this is interesting. How much of your script is dedicated to the presidential versus the down ballot? Um, We always lead with the presidential. um, And then it really depends on the state. So in New Hampshire, for example, we are talking, of course, about the presidential, but then we're also talking about the Senate race, the governor's race, and um, in some cases, the executive council race there, which is... um, very important. So it really depends on the state, um, but it's it's at least 50% down ballot. And Deirdre, what, what kind of places in these states are, are, are considered the, the more uh, optimal areas? For example, do you go do the Philadelphia suburbs? Do you do Wake County in North Carolina? Like, tell us a little bit about uh, the kinds of places where the canvassing is taking place. So those are two great examples. Um, We are absolutely in the suburbs um, talking to swing voters. We're also in Pittsburgh talking to uh, infrequent Democratic voters. Um, We are also in Wake County, Mecklenburg, in North Carolina. Um, And uh, we are in the densest parts of um, New Hampshire. 
So it, it really depends on um, the state, but we are where there are a density of uh, swing, um, largely women voters who uh, we can talk to about access to safe and legal abortion, really being on the ballot this year, um, as well as places where there are a density of um, low propensity Democratic voters. So voters who don't vote every election, but uh, when they do come out and vote are going to vote for the Democrat or in our case, the the pro women's health candidate. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, how you put together the list of who gets the door knock? In, In other words, like when you mine the data that's available, how do you determine uh, what doors to knock on? What what traits are you looking for? Are you you, you pulling off uh, voter lists? Are you uh, other other lists that you've bought? Like how does that list get put together? Yeah, so we invested early in this cycle in some modeling um, that really allows us to see and be able to predict voters' likely positions on access to safe and legal abortion. Um, voters' positions on access to reproductive health care generally, and then how important those issues were to vote choice. Um, And that's the critical piece, and that's a new element for us this year. We've we've had models in the past that have predicted um, where uh, a voter might be in terms of their support for safe and legal abortion, Um, but we've never before had the added layer of how important is that to informing their vote. And this year we have that, and it's really strengthened our targeting and made our canvas um, laser sharp in terms of who we're talking to. And then with that model, we also add in um, state-specific models that we have access to um, that are that are able to predict um, voters' likelihood of being for a particular candidate in that state. And so we make sure that we're talking to folks who are undecided or who are infrequent voters, um, and we know that from their voting history, um, and who really care deeply about the issues that we talk to voters about and are going to vote on it. Well, I think people would be really interested to to know what are the data points that go into that modeling? Like, okay, so you mentioned voting history. What what other points are there that you would use to put together this model that, that tells you something? So we do about 10,000, in order to create the model, we do about 10,000 interviews. Um, And those interviews cover a variety of attitudinal questions. Um, They also um, include demographic questions, um, education level questions. And based on all of that information and and more that I'm probably forgetting to say, um, we then construct... um, the probability, you know, probability models that a given person is um, shares our values and attitudes around um, access to reproductive health care. Um, we can identify uh, ticket splitters, folks who are likely to, um, you know, vote for one party at one level of the ballot and a different party at another level of, ba- of the ballot, um, and people who really um, care deeply enough about these issues to to vote on them. So, I mean, I think without getting beyond my depth on exactly how we create models, and we can, of course, get you that information as a, as a follow-up, um, it's a variety of um, questions that we ask in an, an initial survey coupled with publicly available information that we get from the voter file and from models that others in the progressive community have created. 
So I'm really interested, Deirdre, in what your door knockers are actually finding. On the right, we do hear back regularly that the issue of the Supreme Court is an animating issue for conservative voters. Is it an animating issue for um, left of center voters as well? Absolutely. Um, And in fact, we saw some polling earlier in the cycle in New Hampshire that showed that Kelly Ayotte's um, obstruction of the um, President Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court and her obstruction in service of her political agenda, which is to um, overturn Roe versus Wade, um, was her top testing negative in New Hampshire. So that was like back in May. Um, but that data point really stuck with me because um, I, I, I'm not always sure how aware voters are of the Supreme Court and how much they're really thinking about it. Um, And the fact that this was the number one thing that voters were concerned about in her home state um, back in May, and it's, of course, still true today, uh, really stuck with me. And we are seeing that on the doors. We are seeing uh, high awareness of the vacancy on the Supreme Court and of the ability of the next president to appoint and shape the Supreme Court. So that is a very salient electoral issue. Thank you so much. Deidre Schiefling for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Great to be with you. That's it for us. Thanks for coming to work today, Scott. Until next time. Eli, get back out on the trail. Will do. Charlie Matessian, just stay here with me. It's awesome to be here. And Ken Vogel, what are you going to do next? I'm going to have a fun time, as always. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) That's, like, so sinister. (laughs) You're like a creepy clown. (laughs) Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, and our researcher, Politico producer, Zach Montalaro. And of course, thank you to our listeners. Keep the emails coming and talk to you next week. We love doing this podcast and we really love hearing from you. So please keep the emails coming to nerdcast at politico.com and go to your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Thank you.